Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 119, verses 98 through 106. This reading can be found on page 495 in the Bible in the back of your pew. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn away from your ordinances, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to observe your righteous ordinances. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good job. Good morning, church. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Uh, Interestingly, if you go back two chapters, Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. And if you were to add all the chapters in the Bible up and divide them by two, guess what the middle chapter in the Bible is? Psalm 118. Isn't that crazy? Psalm 117, Psalm 118, Psalm 119. Shortest, middle, longest. (laughs) The things you learn in seminary, church. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Uh, my name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you're with us because today we are beginning a new sermon series. And I know, I know, I know every single time we start a sermon series, I tell you how excited I am. And I authentically am excited, but this one's different. You see, throughout this series, this Bible 101 series, our, our goal is, is not, not simply to, to answer a call or, or to, to understand a topic. Our, our goal is to become more familiar with the greatest tool God has ever given us. Our goal is to better understand and apply the teachings of the Holy Bible. Over the course of these four weeks, we're going to strive to better understand the Bible and find better ways to apply the Bible in our lives. But before we get started with that, I need to ask you to believe something with me in the midst of the series, and here it is. I need you to believe with me that the Holy God, the one who formed you in your mother's womb and who, as Amos said, formed the mountains and creates the wind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth, that God wants to be in conversation with you and with me. I need us to believe that. I need us to, to get that into our spiritual bones. Think about it for a moment. The God of all creation, the God of the cosmos, wants to be in conversation with us. What a beautiful thing that is. And and the primary mechanism that God employs to share God's voice in our lives is the gift of Scripture. So over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to strive to better understand and apply Scripture in our lives. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to kind of go back and forth between two paradigms. We're going to spend some time understanding and then some time applying. And we'll go back and forth each sermon, back and forth between those two paradigms. So it's going to feel like kind of half seminary class. You're welcome. And, and half a coaching session, right? Uh, so, so let's get started with Bible 101. The Protestant canon of Scripture contains 66 books. Now, what does that word mean, canon? Uh, canon with two ends in the middle means a little gun you shoot out the side of a pirate ship. But canon with one end in the middle means a measurement or a rule. And, and when we talk about the canon of Scripture, what we mean is there are certain books that measured up 
and therefore were admitted into the Bible. And there were other books that didn't measure up and therefore were excluded from the Bible. And the Protestant canon of Scripture, the Protestant Bible, has 66 books in it. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. The Roman Catholic Bible has 73 books in it. And I know what you're saying. That's not fair. They get seven more books than we do, right? Now, well, why do they get seven more books than we do? The answer is Martin Stinkin' Luther. That's why they get seven more books than we do. So when Martin Luther uh, executed the Protestant Reformation, he discovered these seven books. He felt like they did not meet with the standard. They didn't, they didn't measure up to the rules. So he took seven books out of the Bible. And you could say, well, that's, that takes some intestinal fortitude to take books out of the Bible. It also takes some intestinal fortitude to break away from the Catholic Church after 1500 years. He, he was a guy that had some, had some guts to him. So the Protestant canon of Scripture, the Protestant Bible has 66 books in it. The Roman Catholic Bible, 73. The largest canon of Scripture in all of Christendom belongs to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And they have 81 books in their Bibles, which somehow just doesn't seem fair to me. Those poor people got to carry around such a giant Bible, you know what I'm saying? But they do. Uh, so 66 books in the Protestant Bible, 73 books in the Roman Catholic Bible, 81 books in the largest canon of Scripture, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church's Bible. Let's jump over to practical application for just a moment. The Bible is an old book. It was written over the course of a couple thousand years, a couple thousand years ago. It is an old book. And, and truthfully, the, the Bible is not one book. It's a, a compendium of 66 different books from different, 66 different perspectives and times throughout history. Suffice it to say that sometimes the Bible can feel a little bit intimidating. Would you agree with that? Yes. So, how do we make the Bible seem less intimidating? Well, one thing that we can do to help the Bible seem less intimidating is actually know what is in the Bible. And what I mean by that is this. We're going to be in this series for the next four weeks, all the way through the end of September. And during this series, I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to learn all 66 books of the Bible and to be able to say them in a minute or less. Ha, ha, ha. No, I mean it. I really do. Be able to say them in a minute or less. Why? Well, here's why. If I know the books that are in the Bible, the Bible becomes less intimidating to me. That's simply the truth. It is. I'm better able to understand, to apply the Bible. I'm more likely to access the Bible if I say, if I share these books, right? Uh, but if I learn to say them, that's one thing. If I learn to say them in a minute or less, I actually know them well enough that I can trust the fact that I know them. Now, I'm not going to ask you to do something I wouldn't do. So, are you ready? Here we go. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 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 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. That takes me about 21 seconds. Now, you're saying to yourselves, you're saying to yourselves, he's just showing off. I'm not. And I can prove it. Here's how I can prove it. In order for me to be showing off, you would have to care whether I could say all the 66 books in the Bible. Then you don't. Then you certainly don't care how quickly I can say all 66 books in the Bible. It's not about showing off for anybody else. It's about having the knowledge. 
If I'm, if I can say the books of the Bible in 20 seconds, if I can say them in a minute or less, I know that I know them and it makes the Bible feel more accessible. So I challenge you. And if you do it, whoever can say them the fastest <laughs> is going to get Pastor Mark's new truck. <laughs> it's, it's only two wheel drive, so I don't know if you really want it, but, uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, back back to the, the understanding piece for a moment. Today I want to spend most of our time talking about the Old Testament. And if we were to talk about the Old Testament, one question we could ask ourselves, okay, what's in the Old Testament? And one way to think about that is that there's really kind of three types of literature in the Old Testament. And our Old Testament is known by our Jewish friends as uh, the Bible, right? They use our Old Testament as, as their Bible. And when our Jewish friends talk about their Bible, they often refer to it as the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K. And each one of those consonants represents a different grouping or type uh, of, of literature in the Bible. The T in Tanakh stands for Torah, which means law. It's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy actually means second law. Deutero means second. Nomi means law because in Exodus we get the law once. In Deuteronomy we get it a second time. First five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law. That's one group of things that are in the Old Testament. The N in Tanakh stands for Nevi'im. And Nevi'im means the prophets. So we got the law. And we've got the prophets. Now, the prophets are further divided into major prophets and minor prophets, which essentially breaks down into what books are really big and what books are are somewhat smaller. The minor prophets, beginning with Hosea, go through the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Those 12 books are called the 12 minor prophets. So we've got the law, the Torah, the Neveim, the prophets, and then the K stands for Ketuveim. And Ketuveim is uh, the Hebrew word for writings. The writings. Uh, so we've got law, we've got prophet, we've got writings. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to a book that contains writings? Proverbs? Psalms. Psalms is probably the most famous of all the writings books in the Old Testament. So if we were to ask ourselves, what type of stuff is in the Old Testament? Basically, it boils down to three types of literature. We've got the law, the Torah, the first five books. We've got the prophets. And then we've got... The writings. We'll continue to talk about this a little bit in just a moment, but let me take us into our second piece of practical application. As you came in this morning, you were handed a document. Uh, it was along with your bulletin. There's a, there's a sheet of paper. If you're following with us online, our online moderator is going to have a copy of this for you to access digitally. But I want to ask you to grab that thing. Let's say that, that I really do feel as if as if as a spiritual being, I, I need to hear God's voice in my life. And maybe I have not in the past been a student of Scripture, but, but I recognize in order for my life to have true meaning as a spiritual being, I need to hear God's voice, and so I want to start reading the Bible. Where do I start? Well, some people would say start in the book of Genesis. I would suggest that's poor advice. Because you read Genesis and that's great, and you read Exodus and that's great, and then you get to Leviticus and everybody falls asleep. Uh, so I would, I would not start in Genesis. In fact, when I talk to people about where they should start reading the Bible, what I suggest to them is you've got to read the most important stories first. 
And the most important stories in the Bible, in my opinion, come from the Gospels. And the most accessible Gospel is the Gospel of John. And so, what you have in your hand is a reading list that would take you from today all the way through the end of the year, reading one chapter a day. It starts with the Gospel of John and then goes to the Gospel of Luke to give us two different perspectives on the Christ event. And then it takes us into the Acts of the Apostles so we can understand what happened in the early church. And that's followed by some explanation of things that were going on at that time through books like Romans and uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. But I want to I challenge you to, to consider, if you're, if you're not in the discipline of, of reading the Bible daily, I want to invite you to begin that process during this series. To spend just a few minutes a day reading these chapters. And the added benefit to it is, as, as we do this, we get to do it together as, as a church. And it will make a difference in my life and yours when we create space for the living God to communicate with us through Scripture. Okay, so uh, let's talk about ordering of Scripture for a moment. The last book in our Protestant Old Testament is the book of Malachi. I want to invite you to grab a Bible. If you brought your Bible, great. If you didn't bring your Bible, there should be a pew Bible somewhere in front of you. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. If you got to Matthew, you went too far. If you're using the pew Bible, it's on page 779 of the pew Bible. I want to read from Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. These are the last words of our Old Testament. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise. Hmm. With healing his wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statues and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Lo, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children, the hearts of children to their parents, so I will not come and strike the land. These are the final words of the final book in our Old Testament. What are they talking about? Well, I would suggest that what we find in here is a version of a messianic prophecy. That God is going to send the Son of Righteousness. And to prepare the place for the Son of Righteousness, God is going to send the new Elijah. Who is the new Elijah, by the way? John the Baptist. Yeah. My point is to say, we have organized our scripture in such a way as to have the last words of the Old Testament point us towards the New Testament. And that's great. However, I think it's worth knowing that our Jewish friends organized the Bible differently. Almost exclusively the same books in their Bible as in our Old Testament. But they organized them differently. The last book in the Tanakh that we just talked about, the last book is the book of Chronicles. Would you turn there with me? Second Chronicles. I'm just going to read the last paragraph of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 22. It's on page 366 of the Pew Bible, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Second Chronicles 36, 22. To set this story up, 
the Hebrew children had been in exile in Babylon for a generation. And then King Cyrus of Persia conquers the Babylonians and he issues a historical decree called the Edict of Cyrus. And what we find at the end of Chronicles is uh, the Bible's version of the Edict of Cyrus. Second Chronicles 36.22 In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so he sent a herald throughout his kingdom and declared in a written edict, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you, all his people, may the Lord God be with you. Let him go up. The last words in our Jewish brothers and sisters Bible, it's from the book of Chronicles, and it tells them to go somewhere. Where are they supposed to go? Jerusalem. And when they get there, they're supposed to do something. What are they supposed to do? Build a temple. Yeah. So the Protestant Bible concludes with the words of Malachi that talk about the coming Messiah. The Jewish Bible conclude with the admonition to go to Jerusalem and build a temple. Why would I tell you this? One, because I think it's interesting to know. But more importantly, here's why. Most of us have had the experience of encountering people who use the Bible as if it were a weapon. They use it to tear people down, to sit in judgment over them. I have certainly encountered those people in my life. It's interesting that our Lord Jesus Christ, the second to last thing he tells us in the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, the second to last thing he tells us is not to sit in judgment of other people. And yet so often people use the Bible to sit in judgment of others. The reason I wanted us to know about the distinction between different types of Bibles, same books, different order, is this. Because while it is God's word, we human beings have had a significant hand in the structure of the way the the Bible is set up. And my hope is that that would inspire some degree of humility in us. So that rather than using the Bible as a weapon to beat others down and to tell them why they are wrong, what would it look like to use Scripture as an opportunity to build others up and help them seek forgiveness and help them to come to know that they are indeed truly beloved children of God? My hope as we engage the study of Scripture, is that we will become more familiar with it, but as we become more familiar with it, it will inspire us not to become arrogant or judgmental, but rather to be filled with humility at what we find in Scripture. One final uh, takeaway uh, or challenge to you, if, if you would choose to accept it, would be this. As you look at that document that you were, you were given, it's got the 66 books of the Bible on one side in case you'd like to memorize them. On the other side, it's got the reading plan. And if you look at the top of the reading plan, it's got three questions. So there are people in this room who may answer the the call, the challenge that I've issued on you to... I don't call you, I challenge you, by the way. I was the wrong word. God calls you. I'm just going to challenge you every once in a while. Uh, The challenge I placed on you to start start reading the Bible a little bit every day. Now, I could do that. I could read a chapter a day in the Bible and I could get to the end of the year and maybe I will have learned something that's great. But the goal is not simply to read the scripture. The goal is to get the scriptures into us. To let them transform us from the inside out. To get God's word inside so that it can start to work within us. How do we do that? Well, I want to suggest that there are three good questions to ask ourselves after reading any single text of scripture. And if they sound familiar, they are exactly the same questions we gave to our young people last week. Question number one. How would I paraphrase the thing that I just read? The first chapter in our reading plan is John chapter 1. 
If I were to paraphrase John chapter 1, I would say in John chapter 1, we find the story of, of Christ and, and the Father being together in the beginning. And then eventually that the Christ becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. We could talk about the coming of John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And mostly we could talk about the gift of God to the world, which was grace upon grace. Those are some ways that I would paraphrase. I would recount back to you what happens in John chapter 1. It's not just having read it. I'm putting it in my own words. I'm trying to grasp it. Question two, not only how, how would I summarize this, but secondly, what does this teach me about God? You know, one of the things John chapter 1 absolutely teaches us about God is that God was relentless in God's pursuit of us. That not only did God form us, but when we ran away, God sent the most precious gift God had, God's own son, to save us, to seek us, and to save us. That's a powerful thing. Then I ask the third question. How would I summarize these things in my own words? What does this teach me about God? And third and finally, how would I apply this to my life? Well, if I've just read a text that taught me that the living God has such great love for me that there's, there's nothing God wouldn't do in pursuit of me, the application to my life might be that I would say, if God has given so much for me, I need to start living the abundant life God has dreamed for that I could live. And so that could take it a lot, number of different ways. Maybe that means I need to spend a little more time on the treadmill. Maybe it means I need to give up smoking. I don't know what it will mean for you. That's the beauty of it. We can read the same text and the Holy Spirit can bring us to different places in the midst of that. But if we ask these three questions, how do I paraphrase this? How do I put it in my own words? What does it teach me about God? And third and finally, how would I apply it to my life? If we do do those three things after reading a chapter of the Bible, we will have just had one heck of a Bible study in our own personal time. Okay. Uh, So... Kind of the final thing I want to do with you today in terms of the Old Testament is this, going back to the the understanding piece for a moment. Uh, It is possible, I think, for most of us to have spent most of our lives at least familiar with the Bible, and perhaps to never have asked ourselves this question, where did it come from? Did you know we we don't actually have an autographed copy of the Bible anywhere? doesn't exist. So where do we get it? Where did we get the Bible? Well, I want to talk to you about where we got the Old Testament today. Where did it come from? The oldest source we have for the Old Testament dates back to about 200 years before Jesus was born. In that time, a man by the name of Ptolemy, who was the king of Egypt, had a desire to amass a great, great sum of literature and to put it in his very famous library. And so about 200 years before Jesus was born, Ptolemy uh, hires 72 Jewish elders to translate the, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, into Greek. It is called the Septuagint. Septua meaning 72. Now, what's interesting to us about this is we don't have the original Hebrew text they used as the source of their translation, but we do have replica copies of the Greek text. My point in saying that is to say, The oldest copy of the Old Testament out there is not in the original Hebrew, but rather the Greek translation called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the primary source of the Old Testament for about 600 years, until in the year 395 AD, a man by the name of St. Jerome undertook the prospect of translating the entire Bible from Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into Latin. And that, that Bible was called the Latin Vulgate, or the Common Latin. Interestingly, uh, the Latin Vulgate is still used most often by our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters to translate their Bibles into various 
lang- modern languages. So then you've got two, two, two uh, books here, two copies of the Old Testament, the Septuagint from 200 BC and the Latin Vulgate from the year 395 AD. Those, uh, interestingly, the two oldest copies, neither one of them happened to be in the original Hebrew. That all changes around the 7th century AD. A group of Jewish scholars got together called the Masoretes, and they began to copy the text from Hebrew into Hebrew. So they weren't translating anything, they were just copying it. Now we don't have the original text that from which they, they copied, but we do have the copies that they made, and so we have this third source called the Masoretic text. Finally, we have a Hebrew copy that takes us into antiquity. So we've got these three sources, the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, and the Masoretic text. And for about 1,300 years, those were the three sources that people used to translate the Bible into modern languages. That is, until the year 1947. In the year 1947, just west of the Dead Sea in Israel, there was a shepherd boy. And he was minding his sheep, a a task I assume was kind of boring because he found himself trying to throw rocks into a cave. And when he threw a rock into the cave, he heard something shatter. So he climbed into the cave. And now when I say climbed into the cave, I don't mean like in storybooks where you see the mouth of the cave and you just kind of walk in. I've been there, I've been to the Qumran, Andy and I have been to the Qumran community, and the the cave is actually at the top of like a 30-foot precipice, so he had to climb up the rock wall and then climb back down the cave. But when he did that he found these earthenware vessels with copies of every single book in the Old Testament, except the book of Esther, and I'll tell you about that why in just a second. Uh, every single copy, a copy of every single book in the Old Testament, f- dating from around the first century. You see, the Qumran community, that was the name of the town in which he found these scrolls, the Qumran community, they were a a group of scholars, and their task was out in the middle of the desert to be people who continued to keep the word of God alive. So they translated it and translated it and translated it. And then in the year 70 AD, when Rome attacked Jerusalem and began heading south, they took all of these earthenware vessels with the scrolls in them, and they hid them in caves where they remained for almost 2,000 years. By the way... Anybody want to hazard a guess as to why they didn't translate the book of Esther? Anybody know what's unique? Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention God. And so the residents of the Qumran community said, if they don't talk about God, we're not going to talk about Esther. So they didn't, they didn't translate it. So, uh, but every other book we had a copy of. That's fascinating to me. Here's here's one thing that comes across in the midst of that. So we've got this copy called the Dead Sea Scrolls now from 1947. It, it took them from 1947 to about 1960 to translate these copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And therefore, if you were to look in your Bible and see that your translation comes after 1960, then your translation of the Bible has the benefit of not three, but four sources. However, if your translation of the Bible comes before 1960... It has not four, but three sources, right? And some of you are saying, did he just insult my King James Version? (laughs) No, because there are actually uh, editions of the King James Version that have been made since 1960. Um, But it is is worth noting that three sources is really good. Four sources is even better. Two things that I think are takeaways from this understanding. One. One thing that should happen when we understand the way the Old Testament came together, it should inspire us with a sense of confidence. 
Because God didn't give us just one or two sources. God gave us four sources to keep God's word alive. Four sources from different perspectives and times and, and, and linguistic backgrounds. God gave that to us. And not only that, God miraculously preserved an entire source for 2,000 years to give to us. It should inspire confidence in us, but it should also inspire awe. That throughout time and throughout the ages, it hasn't just been to you and me that God wants to be in conversation. God wants to be in conversation with all humans from all times and in all places. And so God has given us the gift of God's word in the form of scripture. Thank you for being part of this first installment of our Bible 101 series. Remember this, the great desire of God's heart is to be in conversation with you. And the greatest way that God can speak into any of our lives is when we access scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit and bolstered by our understanding. Thank you for being with us in this first installment of Bible 101. I hope that you will join with us next week as we begin to talk about the gospels, their composition, and why the four gospels are the way they are. Would you pray with me, church? Holy God, I thank you for the gift of your scripture. We thank you for the way that you have refused to let us go our own way. When we ran away, you sought after us. And when we came back home again, you have given us the opportunity to learn from you, to hear your voice in our lives. You gave us the gift of scripture. I thank you for the integrity inherent within Scripture, for not one or two, but four very good sources that inspire us to better understand and illuminate your word. I ask God in a very practical way that you would help your people, all of us in the sound of, all of us within this room, all of us watching online, I pray that you would help all of us to covenant that our lives are important and our lives are made even more important when we are in connection with the source of all things, the source of great love. Inspire us, O God, to hear your voice every single day and to hear it by the study of Scripture. We pray these things in the powerful name of Christ Jesus our Lord and always for the sake of his kingdom. And all of God's people said, Amen.